You're listening to the Zach and Andy Show, episode six. What's the deal with podcasting? It's just a radio show for normal people. Roll the theme tune. No, not that theme tune, you idiot. The other one. Zach and Andy Show, the only place to go to hear a couple of guys giving shitty advice on the music industry. Hello and welcome back to the Zach and Andy Show. Episode, Zach, which episode is this? This one's episode six, Episode Andy. six. Can you believe that, people? I mean, I believe it, but I, I don't believe that all of the people have been listening to us for six episodes. What are you doing with your we life? We have no listeners. Anyway, um, <laughs> how you been? You, you good? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been an interesting time for me. I'm I'm nearly nearly finished up writing some new music, and uh, as you know, it's been a bit of a trial for me. Uh, but um, yeah, I'm getting there. music writing music always is. Um, and I think today we're going to focus on the topic of is music subjective. Thank you, Zach. Thank you for <laughs> interjecting that one back for me. <laughs> um, which which is uh, is not really a hot topic. Nobody's talking about it. I just thought it was kind of interesting, you know. Um, yeah. It's a kind of science versus art thing. Yeah, and we can have fun with this. I mean, you know, we're doing this podcast for us as well as for other people as well. So. And any excuse to, to sit here and drink tea with your good self. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we, we, we want to touch on that, right? So yeah. I've gone for, uh, what is this? So I believe uh, you've got the sticky date. I think it's a sticky date toffee ensemble. with Ensemble. Uh, and there's, there's some... <laughs> caramel notes under, as well? Yeah, caramel notes and undertones of licorice. Ooh. I may have made that up. I don't know if you made the licorice up, but uh, the rest of it's pretty mm. good. And it is lukewarm because it took us... Probably about 25 minutes to set the goddamn podcast stuff up. Also, I've got this thing with my ear that's just started to happen, which is yeah. really not helpful. Um, that every time I, it's got like, like, you know, when you go swimming and it's it's going in and out of, my ear is going in and out of consciousness. Oh, the, the pressure. Yeah, I don't like know. There's some shit going on in my ear, your ear. Yeah, yeah, Oh, yeah. every time I, every other syllable is like, it's like it's been low pass filtered or something. I don't know. Anyway, look, we got to move on. People are listening. People need to know what the hell's going on. Um, <laughs> we're talking about is music subjective? Well, really, what I want to get to the, I want to say I want to get to the crux of that. Is that a thing? The crux. I don't know. I want to get to the, the epicenter of this. You want to get to the core. I want to get to the core, Zach. I want to get, to, I want to get deep inside. <laughs> I don't want to get, the, I know. With the, the hand. Yeah. Uh, I want to get, yeah. No, no, if you're continue, listening to the podcast, to, you won't, you won't see the hand that, movement I just did. You've got to continue Listen, with that train. I want to find out how much music can be can be planned, can be controlled. How much of it is complete fluke, complete luck? Is mm. a pop song? Uh, is it, you know, a song that goes to number one? Is that is there a reason? Is it the formula of the writing? We'll touch on that. Yeah. Is there a fundamental thing that makes music good or a piece of music better? And of course, I can I can end this podcast right now, Zach, by saying, of course, music is subjective. Bam. Done. You know, that was the shortest podcast ever. Yeah, See you later. You episode yeah, six. This is how we're getting episodes done so fast. <laughs> yes. Uh, no. But, no, we're not stopping it there. No, we're not stopping it there. Of course, music is subjective, right? But there, there's a huge amount of evidence for to suggest that music has a lot of science behind it of what's what makes a piece successful why does it resonate more if it's a certain way mm. um also how about th- how about this for evidence that music is not just subjective there is some hardcore 
thing going on that that governs whether it's going to be a successful piece of music or not. How about this, Zach? Yeah. How could you teach music? How can you teach music if music is just subjective? If you're teaching a way that it has to be done, then there must be a globally accepted uh, feeling of how how what makes music good. Because you're teaching a certain way, aren't you? Yeah, a globally accepted musical norm, I guess you could say. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, look, really, when it when it comes down to teaching music, it's very hard to teach people how to write music. So what is generally taught is how to perform. You're so right. Yeah, you're so right. Actually, I've never thought about that. Yeah, because if you think about it, like, because I, uh, you know, I, I was quite lucky. Um, when I was younger, my 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 mum was really, um, she really pushed for me to be able to have as much opportunity when it came to learning uh, musical instruments. You know, the first instrument I started was the piano. Uh, it's somewhat of a common instrument for people to start with, but for good reason because you can you can do a lot, a lot with a with a piano musically yeah, as I'm- a performer as a composer. I come from exactly the same background. My mum and my my dad both pianists. My dad's a grade eight pianist. Mm. He he taught me piano from the age of five. That was the first instrument I learned, other than probably singing or whatever I was doing when I was five years old. Um, Just yelling around the place, yeah. throwing throwing um you know stewed apple at the wall, and yeah. having a good time. <laughs> exactly, stewed apple. Yeah, well, okay. you know, in the, that's what you do, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Well, so. I did that anyway, and I'm proud of it. Okay. Um, <laughs> And and yeah, with with piano, I mean, I've told you this, talked to you about this before. I come from a very classically kind of trained background in that sense that I mm. hated it. And when I, when I got to about twelve years old, I I quit playing piano because it was so regimented, and I hated the, the theory and the way it was taught. I thought it was really it was bollocks, really. Mm. And I never really learned how to write music from my perspective, from my experiences. I was just I was just playing the same shit that I was told to play because that's how you perform, as you say. You perform certain pieces, you practice scales, you practice theory. And yes, those tools are essential to teach someone. Well, not essential, but they are. They help you greatly in writing music, don't they? Yeah, they do. And it's it's a definitely a large, like it's a massive benefit um, for somebody who's trying to create music for them to be able to, you know, perform obviously with 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 an instrument that has such a wide tonal character that piano does. Um, and obviously you've got all of the, the options available for you there. Doesn't, it also becomes option paralysis as well. And we'll run into that. I think a little bit later on. Like that option yeah. paralysis. Yeah. How I about just that? picked that one straight from the Dillinger <laughs> escape plan, but I don't oh, care. <laughs> Why did you say it? Um, uh, it's yeah. not, it's pretty, pretty, pretty common knowledge anyway. But I mean, the thing is, is, it's interesting that you say that you, you know, you quit um, piano yeah. uh, because you felt like you couldn't get anywhere with what you were wanting to do when it came to writing music. Well, I I quit piano because I wasn't any good, <laughs> and I didn't I didn't have a I didn't have a, a, a you know a grade eight pianist um, um, you know in the family to sort of coax me into trying more more complex and detailed things. Uh, so I decided my infinite wisdom to go from piano. The violin. Are you serious? Yeah, I did violin for a year, and then after I did violin, I thought it. I thought I would be extra cool and go to flute for a year as well. You're gonna have to explain that rationale. There's not any ex- no, no. The coolness, Zach. That's. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. What's the least? What the segue? What's the least cool instrument you can play? It's 
got to be flute. No, I don't know, man. I don't know because you can do the Yaz, the Yaz flute. You can do the fucking Jester of Toll shit, which is awesome. Yeah, but but let me tell you something, Zach. Yeah, imagine playing the tuba. Can you imagine being the kid at school who lugs that around when you see them when they got this massive tuba on their back? Is that not yeah. the un- most uncool thing? Yeah, I I think so. French it's horn. Bit, oh, I don't know. I mean, look, but then you've got Scar. Yeah, you know, and, and Scar you, is so cool. And Hans Zimmer's brought the tuba back into fashion, hasn't he, with those brom things? So they were always in fashion. They were. I just think that people just, you know, they they worry about just you know, feel, all that kind of thing. I just feel sorry for that kid on the way to school who has to carry that thing. What on his about back. what about the poor kid who has to take around the double bass? There's the double bass too. Yeah, but that's that's super cool. Well, that's though. super cool. I think that is that is. And um, we're we're miles off topic. Guys. I don't know if we are miles off topic. Though we're talking about his music subjective. We're talking about instruments that started for us and how we sort of yeah. segue into our thing. But I've it's the kind of interesting thing for me though is that uh you you jumped to guitar at twelve. Something like that. Yeah, like 10, I, 11, 12. Something. I jumped to guitar at thirteen. You know? Yeah. I basically I, I cut off piano, tried violin, tried the flute, like nah. Wasn't doing it for you? Well no. Tried cigarettes, that wasn't cool enough. Eh. Then the flute came in and you were like, hey ladies, what's up? What's up? No. <laughs> No, uh, I was. There God. was no. There's no segues into the forest there or whatever. <laughs> the Pied Piper of Melbourne. Oh, here. I didn't even grow up in Melbourne anyway. No, you didn't. Gonna, Where no. did you grow up? Ah, uh, let's move on. <laughs> you grew up in some German fairy tale village, I think. No, you I do did have not. a German background, there, don't you? That is true. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, we're we're seriously it's off okay, topic. We British. were talking about the piano, right? Yes, we were. And how we? I both. I'm. I'm sad that I'd, I. I'm sad that I actually stopped. Stopped learning and and stopped you know focusing on the piano because now as a as a as a composer and a producer um the piano to me is almost as important as my guitar mm. and i mean in I, some use ways the, it's I, more. I use the piano to write ev- like almost everything if 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 it's you know any kind of melody it's it's going from the piano midi and, and i can write with midi playing the piano and you know I really rely on the piano to write music these yeah, days. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you you do a bloody great job with it as well. Thanks, so. Zach. Thanks, man. No problem. Man. Um, but but where does this fit into the subjectivity of music? Well, it's very, as I said, it's very regimented. The the kind of rules that that I was learning, mm. and it bored the hell out of me. And it wasn't until I picked up the guitar that I really started to write my own kind of music. Um, but I don't know where were we going with the piano thing? Do you think? Oh, just because the way that piano, because piano is often taught uh, for, for, you know, for kids at a young age and they generally would be given, you know, these are sort of standards on the piano and you should learn these standards on the piano because they're going to be really good for you to be able to, you know, work out <clears throat> the way that music should go. So it's the law that governs music in a weird way, isn't it? It's like the kind fundamentals, of. the underlying this is how you do it, and then you can go off and elaborate on that, yeah? Yeah, and I mean, you know, if you come from, like, if you're, I don't know if it's the same in, in the UK, but generally, um, you know, over here in in Australia, if you're learning piano at a young age, uh, there's often uh, a whole bunch of classical pieces that sort of they try and seg- segment into your learning and things like Christmas carols and all of that kind of stuff. And classical music in itself uh, is a whole beast that I want to understand more about, but 
learning certain specific classics on piano, like for Elise is a great one that everyone will just always be given to learn. But mm. why, why is it that song? Yeah. Why, why are there, I guess I want to get into why are there successful songs versus non-successful songs? Is yeah. it, I, I do believe a lot of that is luck. Um, but I think more so it's the catchy appeal. Is the song catchy? Is it memorable? Mm. Does it have hooks? Do you know, ultimately though, I'd have to say that, what makes a song successful or a piece of music successful um, is not necessarily just the hooks and, and things like this. It's how it affects people emotionally on an emotional level. Oh, yeah. How people respond mm. to that piece of music. And if people generally respond, have a high response, high emotional response to that music, that's a successful piece of music. That's, that music has done its job. Definitely. And I think it's interesting because... Right now, especially for, for, for me, when it comes to how I write music, um, I only really focus on the emotions of the actual music itself. Uh, I'm not like the message in terms of the underlying message that the song is trying to deliver obviously comes out in the lyrics a lot later on. But it's <laughs> there's so much emotion that can be given when it comes to the tonal characteristics, the note choices, the chordal phrases in a song uh that can make you feel things and a lot of that i i it's interesting a lot of that is probably sometimes referenced in a way um that stems from things like movie scores and tv scores and things along those lines like back before they were able to or chose to uh have people talking um, on movies and things, they had to portray emotion mm. just through the music. Exactly. Silent movies, amazing example. You've got yeah. the, the piano going on there. Yeah, um, you're right. Movie scores, actually, I wasn't even thinking about this, but that's a fantastic um, observation, Zach. Well done. Um, Thank y'all. <laughs> because, because, again, you know, I, I, I want to, when I think back to the very old music where maybe it was just rhythms and singing and yelling and stuff, and then you start to question, you know, what is... And we, we did touch on genre before. I wanted to kind of steer away from that. But mm. what is music? And why do we have these weird rules and associations? Why do we associate certain emotions with minor key? So like a sad, you know, a sad feeling for minor key music. When you hit the major key, it's fulfilling and it's nice. And there is a science. I think there is a science behind that. Um, but it's also a, um, I think it's a learned thing. I think it's uh I think it's what 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 am I trying to say here it's almost like a shared ex it's it's a shared experience but it's also like a everyone is on the same page when yeah. a minor chord hits in a movie you know it's a sad scene you're not going to have some some happy tune playing when you know Mufasa dies do you get what I'm saying here no no don't work, don't, don't trigger me on Mufasa I know as well. right oh my god um, <laughs> oh my god I'm tearing up just thinking about it, Zach. Some unbelievable, some some of the best music, and I'm not talking about the sing-alongs in that. I'm talking about the score by Hans Zimmer. Unbelievable. Go check out the Stampede song oh, God, if you want to yeah, have a good time yeah, with that. Absolutely incredible. Anyway, mm. um, so what I'm saying here is we kind of to understand if music is subjective, we need to understand how the human being or you know people as a, as a collective. Mm. how they interpret different 
sounds in music and different phrasing and different melodies and modes and scales and how they associate that with with emotions how that triggers emotions and this is really interesting so i spoke to my dad i always speak to my dad about like music theory and understanding the psychology of music and trying to get down to it what it i actually i don't know if i spoke to you about this before but i had i don't a, think so no i used to have a book a note a notebook mm-hmm. and i just i lived on my own in an attic and i just i just decided one day i'm gonna write a dictionary of every interval of notes so i wrote note one okay dash two so then it's, you know, let's say a C to a C sharp. Mm-hmm. What did that make me feel? So I played it on the piano and then I wrote dash and I wrote uneasy. Then I did note one to note three, mm. C to a D, for a example. Tone. Yeah, a tone, right? And then how did that make me feel? And I wrote this dictionary. It's, it's insane. I've got it somewhere. And it, it basically maps out my emotion, my, my emotional response to intervals between notes, which is everything music is. Really? Yeah. I mean, That's it's, what it's, melody is. And and it's interesting because, um, you know, a lot of times I remember when I got first introduced to intervals um, and explained what intervals were, so to speak, at school, uh, we, were, we were told different intervals had different feels to them. We weren't explained, told why, but we were told that they had different feels to them. And like... Um, a classic one that gets used in a lot of heavy music uh, that is something that is not used as much in popular music, but is used a lot in heavy music, especially metal, is an augmented fourth. Mm-hmm. And that has always been given the like the kind of evil kind of tone, mm-hmm. evil kind of sound. And it's funny because... I feel I, I would not be surprised, and I'm happy to be corrected on this. You can send me some hate. Um, please do. Please send us some hate. No, but that when when people started writing heavy metal, they used that interval on purpose to try and make the music sound evil because they wanted to to, and, to yeah, have that the, kind of emotion. Yeah, I mean, the Devil's Tritone is was banned because those two notes were so dissonant sounding that mm. people i guess from the church believed that you know we're talking i don't know what century we might be 16th century or something it's a long time ago they were yeah don't quote me on that but they they banned this interval because it it made people feel uneasy and it, it they literally thought people were summoning the devil by playing these two notes it's very interesting to me i love that i love all that stuff um and of course now yeah you're right in metal we're trying to make things sound as evil as possible and trying to get that certain response from from the listener um but here's one for you zach so i'm talking to my dad about these these things and how it and and how it's almost a genre in itself is the note choice and um and he brought up that jew traditional jewish music Mm. if you imagine a, a bunch of traditional jews jumping around dancing in a circle right yeah you know i know that sounds a bit um no, I, I've, Please, seen, I've, I've seen some Jewish festivals yeah. before, and and generally speaking, it's it's like it's a family affair. It's right. a really happy time. So let's say bar mitzvah. What's happened? Oh, you're kidding. Yeah. Okay, uh, we had a bit of a drop out there in Cubase. Sorry, guys. Yeah. So we were Oops. talking about um, going to like experiencing uh, like a Jewish festival. I mean, it's, we're not we're not trying to be religious here or anything like that. We're just talking about the music that's associated, yeah. associated so, with that. Yeah, so let's say a bar mitzvah, everyone's having a great time. Yeah. My dad pointed out 
that if you listen to the music, traditional Jewish music, it's actually all in a minor key. It's actually, okay. it should not be happy. And yet, and he even said, I wonder, and we kind of agreed on this, I wonder whether like subconsciously they have, you know, put all their horrible history of, you know, everything that's happened to them as a people into their music in a way. They've got mm. this kind of, this sad undercurrent to everything, even though that's their kind of, that's their happy go-to music is actually in the minor key. Really interesting, I found that, because I don't think that's, that's anywhere else. Um, Not that I can think no. of when it comes to like, a, especially something that's, that's meant to be obviously quite a, um, a grand affair as yeah. well, so yeah. to speak, um, with the music. Uh, and it's interesting, obviously, talking about the science and the psychology behind music as well. There's a lot, because I'm quite lucky, obviously, uh, if you've listened to previous episodes of the podcast, you'll have heard me talk about my partner in the fact that she um, she actually works in, um, in the music neuroscience, uh, like she works in music neuroscience. So she's literally researching things that we're talking about here in the podcast on a scientific level. Uh, it's highly complex and I'll, we'll be honest, my understanding of it is very simple, but uh, I will, I will run through some things that she's, uh, she's given me some piece, like pieces of information recently, uh, which I think might be really appropriate for this podcast. But I think that before we go into that, Andy, I think that it's probably going to be a little bit of a time for us to hit a commercial break. Don't Absolutely. you agree? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Zach, yeah. we need to hear from our sponsors, as always. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I think I'm going to drink to that. What about you, Andy? I'll join you, me. All right. Cheers. Cheers, indeed. I remember this one fateful night. I was working as a district nurse. I got called out to the neighbouring village. Uh, little Jimmy had fallen off a skateboard. Uh, I got over as fast as I could and I held little Jimmy in my arms. And um, his, his brains, unfortunately, were oozing out everywhere, all over my hands. I looked up at his mother and I just said, You best pop the kettle on, love. It's going to be a long night. There's nothing you can't get through with a country brew. All right, welcome back to the Zach and Andy show. I'm here with my co-host Andy, uh, and uh, yeah, we've just come back from a nice, delicious commercial break. As always, yeah, yeah, exactly. These guys are repping us hard. They are repping us hard, but you know what? Hey, sometimes you've just got to have you've got to have a good sponsor. You do, you do, Zach. Yeah. I'm proud of them. Proud to I'm be very part. proud. I'm proud very to proud. Uh, proud to be uh, associated with those guys. And gals over at uh, Country Brew. Yeah, yeah. Go um, get yourself a cup. Yeah. So, so what I want to bring bring in now is a bit more of the science, and uh, I know you've got some great shit to talk about on that. But we're we're gonna go with yours for the now. I I I, I yeah. lead me into it. Well, I really believe that there are some fundamental things going at, at like a waveform level of what music really is—the real science of music. Um, mm. When you take away like flashing your tits on stage and and like all the little gimmicks and everything else that goes along with it when you're talking about real fundamental classical composing and you know it's the note choice right and there's something that the note choice is doing and um beethoven has been cited as a genius you know i love beethoven and i think at the time he certainly was a genius um and if you listen to moonlight sonata movement one he, if you line up all the the changes in, um, you know, the chord changes and the decisions he's made, 
he subconsciously i mean you can see some youtube video on this and some someone's claiming that he was a scientific genius because he you know playing c sharp minor chord had this like wavelength and then every peak the, the next chord he played let's say a, a, a g sharp mm. that that next wave would meet up at exactly the trough of that wave so when that one dipped that would fill the gap and every note every choice of chords beethoven was choosing was actually scientifically correct to what a human would want you want to hear or human would would expect the gaps to be filled it's really interesting stuff um so i think i think there is definitely and and we talked about a minor and a major the difference well a major chord is as like a one a one three five and a minor you're you're dropping that middle note just one semitone that's all a minor chord is it a minor chord is effectively it was almost perfect but it wasn't because that middle note dropped down mm. a semitone right so there's a feeling of disappointment in the chord itself or just because of that note it's like it almost made it but it didn't and that's what creates that sadness and what's actually happening on the fundamental level with the wavelengths is the 135 those waves would actually meet up so you'd have a really long the lowest note would be longer the next one would be a bit shorter and then the next one and they're filling each other's gaps so you've got this perfect thing but when you have dissonance a minor chord or if you go even more extreme than that and you have like you know completely dissonant if you play just three semitones together it's going to sound horrible the reason is those wavelengths don't belong together they don't match up so mm. there is definitely something that's not subjective going on with music no well i mean it's 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 interesting because if you're looking at that kind of thing, obviously for myself, I, I get to actually see those waveforms, um, you know, inside productions and, and inside, you know, the songs that I'm working on with artists and things along those lines. Um, and a big part of what actually that I do um, when I'm when I'm editing things and 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 manipulating the the engineered like engineered sound to get the best sonic replication. It's all really, what it boils down to, it's all really about making sure that those waveforms are in the most complementary fashion to each other, arranged so that they can provide the best, I guess, human, like humanly desired sonic perception of that piece of music. Mm. And, and it's really funny because sometimes the desired thing is pure, uh, pure dissonance and to do so you'll find that artists will actually want you to, to manipulate it to have uh, dissonance stacked upon dissonance stacked upon dissonance but not it depends on what you want to try to do as well like you could be you could be wanting to have like a really segmented thing where you've got the one particular interval and you just want that stacked upon itself within octave basis as you know one octave below the primary kind of note, an octave above, and then different instruments replicating that. Things like, um, you know, bass, guitar, vocal replications of it as well. But then you've also got the things where you choose to make chords that could be, you know, things like suspended chords, seventh chords. Um, you they know, all have a meaning. They, they all, all have, have a different meaning. Yeah. And you can have a chord like a great one that I really love. I don't know what the chord is called, but is utilizing um, 
it's utilizing a suspension across all six notes of the guitar. Uh, and to me, strings. when I, yeah, all the, all six notes of the guitar strings. And I, when I play this chordal shape, to me, it sounds like, it sounds very dreamy, mm-hmm. but I couldn't tell you what the particular chord is, but I know the emotion behind it. And so when I'm going to write a song and I want a section to sound dreamy, mm. I'll use that chordal shape within the scope of the scale. Yeah. I mean, we talked about lyrics before I write very much. I, I, I do write lyrics. I do write vocal melodies, etc. But my, my main thing, I guess, is writing from the heart, emotionally, emotionally driven music, which mm. has to take the place of, even if there are vocals on there, my my music is always very, you know, is trying to tell a story and there's this, there's a message that comes. It's not, I never write just for the sake of it. I don't plonk things down because theory told me it goes there. I don't put in this chord because, you know, I saw some other band do it and I think that's the norm. Like I write because I understand that tool set, the toolbox of chords and notes. I know exactly if I want, my listener to to feel a certain way i'll reach in i'll go i know exactly what they need they need this to go here and i need it to like you know drop out into this bit yeah um but it's interesting because not everyone will hear that message the same way everyone will interpret it differently based on their experience hence this kind of this jewish music which has a minor feel but yet there's a celebration going on they they're hearing something different to what we we will um it, it's just really interesting. It's very, it's how, very cool, how, really. How, yeah, how differently it can be perceived. But then again, you know, when it all boils down to it, everyone can pretty much agree on a sad sounding thing and a happy sounding thing, um, and a good. But yeah, here's where it gets messy: is with good versus bad. And what makes a song good, Zach? When what makes a song good? The short answer is: what makes a song good is a song that you can listen to, and it can evoke an emotion that allows you to relate something yep. to that song. Yeah. If that is the case, then the song's good. Then there's scales of good. Like how is it? Is it, oh, it's good. But uh, I, this, this listen was all I needed. I got what I wanted out of this one. Listen to the song or this song is incredible. I want to listen to this song once a week for the next 10 years. Yeah. Because there are songs that, that have that kind of effect on people. Uh, and effectively, it's, it's just about how your brain reacts. And everyone's brains are wired differently, uh, genetically and from experience, mm. uh, nature-nurture thing. You know, everyone has a different brain, a different setup going in. And I guess pop music is pop music because most people can relate to it. So, you know, 95% of the population enjoy pop music because that's the most relatable dish on the menu that but whereas you know we we're kind of more into the metal scene we we're working with a niche but so some we might i i feel like i write gourmet music which is really well thought out and take and take very i take a long time to write it because i'm I'm structuring what I think is a masterpiece, but to yeah. someone who just listens to pop music, they they might not like that. I mean, you so know, it's subjective in that sense. It is. I mean, it. I guess an easy way to sort of look at it is if I was to compare Andy to myself and then myself to to pop music, because I would say that what I do um, doesn't quite touch on the complexity of some of the ch- the pieces of composition that Andy is doing, just simply because. 
Well, the complexity is there, but the complexity is in different different way. Um, and, but then I'm also, I do a lot of stuff that's a touch more on the poppier side as well. Uh, so I would say it's like this, you know, pop music is like you're going and getting yourself, you know, uh, you're going and getting yourself a staple. Not, not, it wouldn't say fast, like not fast food, but like you're going and getting yourself a staple. You're going to the pub and getting yourself a steak and chips or a chicken parmigiana or, you know, whatever. Like, but you know, you know what you're getting and you know that you'd like that and you enjoy that. Then, you know, you've got the music that I write, which is, uh, you've gone out to dinner and they've gone, would you like the set? Would you like the regular menu or would you like the, the banquet special and the banquet special, you know, you get three course banquet, really nice, you know, lots of levels of flavor. It's fantastic. Um, something that you can enjoy, something that you don't get too often, but you really enjoy it. Then you've got Andy, which is where with Andy, you know, you've gone to the restaurant specifically booked two weeks ahead so they can cook this seven course dish for you and your family. And, you know, it's rich with emotion, rich with flavor. Um, but it's something that requires a lot of time for it to be created. Yeah. And probably requires a lot of time for people to be ready for. Yeah. Because obviously it's not, thanks that was a great compliment man i appreciate that but it's down to taste and and it's it down is. to an acquired taste in many ways because i may write some symphonic metal piece which has like a 70 string orchestra going on and you know the the average person would just be like uh this is a lot going on i'm not really into this and that's fine so it's yeah. subjective in that way it's what your ex- it's expectations is what you're used to you know there's that there's that side of it as well um but another really interesting thing is how pop music is is written with a team of writers these days, usually like 12 people around a table writing any old pop song. And it's, it's, it's not necessarily very requiring much skill in the sense of performance, as in classical, you know, show, if you look at Chopin, Beethoven, you know, Mozart, any, any kind of, you know, composer back then, it was all about skill and showing off. And I think metal music derives a lot from that it brings in a lot of that i would agree listen to how fast and how accurate i can play and still convey emotion and people tap into that and it becomes successful for that reason but pop is totally different pop music is more um there needs to be i will say this in pop there does need to be between one and three people in pop who need to be on the money when it comes to their performance and Mm -hmm. that's 95% 95% of the time that is whoever's singing the song and they have to be fantastic for the pop song to be successful generally speaking and the five the other 5% is who's auto tuning it um no but um oh, that could be who you know yeah. in terms of no. whoever's playing it or whatever of course. but the big difference is with pop a couple of people need to be fantastic performers and then it's down to the songwriting um, and there is a lot of work that goes into a very successful pop song. You know, there's a reason why the sa- there's, a, there's, there's a number of artists out there who are continually successful. Um, you know, some, some great examples of them are Bruno Mars, Ed Sheeran. They are two pop artists out there who are very well known to being writers of their own music and other pop musicians as well. They're succeeding because they took the time to learn how to write music very well. Um, and then there's a whole ho- whole host of other successful pop artists out there who aren't writing their own music, but they're also not quiet about that. But mm. then if you look at classical music, you've got to have exception, you know, 
exceptional composition, but to perform the actual piece of music as well, you need like 40 to 60 very, very talented performers to do it justice. So the big difference there isn't about, it's not just about the composition. It's also about the performance as well. Because you can't. Yeah, and that's there the skill comes in. Yeah, you know, that's it's, where it's the almost like in. a it's almost like a circus act as well. You know, it's this. I want to see the guy do his trick. You know, I don't. Want, I just. I don't just want to hear a great piece of music written by an, a maniac in, locked away in his room for a year, which is pretty much what I am. But they want. I wasn't they want to say it, but it's true. Ladies. They want someone <laughs> <And> to hear. <laughs> they want. They want to see Mozart come and play that on the piano and conduct his own, almost conduct his own piece by the piano and or harpsichord. And you yeah. know it. It's interesting when you go to pop music, you have a table of people. Let's say there's 12 people around a table. You like 12 people at a table, don't you? I do. It's very much the Last Supper kind of vibe. Okay. Although there were 12 disciples. and No, because maybe Judas wasn't around by that point. I can't remember. No, he was because I think Judas... I don't know anything about religion. Let's skip that. Okay. Um, (laughs) What I'm saying here is that pop music is, is, is based around formulas. They are very... I mean... You're talking about money here, right? We're talking about big bucks. We're talking about people just going, we need a banger. We need a hit. We need a number one hit. We're not going to take any risks. We're going to take as much emotion out of this, um, the way we're going to write this. And of course, yeah, Bruno Mars, Ed Ed Sheeran, of course, he's writing from the heart, okay? But I'm talking about the people who are putting together the next, you know, Britney Spears album or something like that, you know, where it's just literally, what's the formula? Okay, Um, I've even heard, you know, you know, first chorus, first chorus. It's got to have this structure. It's got to have these these kind of chords which make people feel a certain way. Oh yeah, key change, insert key change here. Bam, we've got a banger. We know it. We know, we know to the point where we've got computers writing those songs. We have we have formulas, Zach. We have formulas. Did you know this per season? So if it's a summer season in America, because I guess that's where this is all coming from. So not necessarily Australia. The number one hit you'll hear on the radio has a certain chord structure dependent on those summer vibes. They really yeah, do that. You know, and then when winter comes around, they need to write the winter structure because people associate better with it. It's it's insane. It is, it is. And it's really interesting because um if you look at the artists who are the most successful and you have the biggest impact and the largest careers with in the scope of popularized music, and when I say popularized music, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily just mean pop. Um, those artists don't write to the scene, as don't write to the um, season. Like mm. a great example, and you know this is an inter- this is an interesting and possibly controversial thing, but a great example of a very successful artist who doesn't write to the season is Taylor Swift. She, her music. Now I. I I don't know enough about obviously the intricacies that go on within her writing team, but I do know that she is involved in some of the writing, not all of it, but she definitely has a heavy hand in it. Her songs aren't based around the season and they don't have scales that sit within the season that is sort of to come out with the music. But I would definitely say that the way that her music is compared to a lot of other popularized music that is currently going out at the moment, is she creates a sound, then that sound gets utilized, but she then creates a new sound instead of going with that same sound before. So she kind of is one of those people who sort of set a trend for the popularized music. 
Um, another great example is uh, Panic at the Disco um, and Brendan Urie. He's a, a vocalist and performer who came from, I guess you could say the rock scene. He came from the emo scene. Um, he's now one of the most successful artists in the world because he's managed to push himself into the realm of popularized music without being a pop singer. Uh, and it's, it's really strange because for him, like his biggest reference when it comes to his music, um, is Frank Sinatra and Queen. Like those are his biggest, uh, influences and the biggest sort of like port like, character portrayals that he pushes forward. One of their best songs is a song that came out in 2016 called Death of a Bachelor. That album was, I think, their third or second album that went number one on the Billboard charts. Um, and that particular song, it's a, it's a swing song. It's a swing song, and it went in the album, you know, it was the leading single for an album that went number one in the world. So why is a swing song with a, with a pop swing singer on it so successful. And I think that that boils down to that, like people, you've got these manufactured kind of sounds going on with pop music, but the lasting kind of things for people can't be manufactured. And I think that's kind of the big, big point to hammer home is that the manufacturing that gets made by these songs being built by computers and by these production teams, it's, it's, it works, but it's not lasting. Interesting, debatable, but interesting. I think that that's the case. Yeah. But the, I, you can you can definitely send me some hate on that. Andy's going to send me some hate on that. I can <laughs> no, see on his I, face I can. Right I, now. <laughs> I, I think it's, I think it's you know these record labels are, they don't want to be taking any gambles. They they are they're too scared to take any risks. They know that the money are, yeah. the, the money is the safe money is making the song that we've already heard a million times with those same four or three chords and with those the, whatever you know, whatever sound is popular, you'll hear a Justin Bieber song with some weird um, vocal thing. You know, I'm talking about like a synthesized vocal in the background that's like ah, going on. And then suddenly you'll, the next week, there'll be three other songs on the radio with that same synthy vocal thing in the background. And it's, everyone's yeah. copying each other because, oh shit, that was successful. Okay, write it down. We're going to use that in our next one. It's just, it's pathetic. It's not writing from the heart. It's, no, but it's, it's pandering to, what the most basic human would would want to listen to, and it works. It works, you know, pretty much every time. It does. I mean, the, the the big thing that's going around right now that a lot of people are gonna probably to pick up on is is the production of the new Billie Eilish music. Like, I'm yeah. I'm not a fan of that. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's not good and but it's not came, successful. But they, so this is the. The chick who's kind of whispering into the mic for yeah, the whole yeah. time, right? So that actually took me by surprise because that's that's totally different than anything I've ever heard. Yeah, so it's, it's it is a new actually, kind of sound. They've taken a big risk, I think. There, they definitely have, but it's paid off. Yeah. Um, the 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 thing that I I mean, I hope that it's not going to happen. Uh, not because I don't think that she shouldn't be setting a trend, because she obviously will is by doing what she's doing, but I don't want to see. <laughs> Everyone going and doing that thing. Yeah, I know. That she's doing. And look at look at the we're back on genres. Yeah, it's people copying people because the things that they heard were successful. They saw, oh yeah, that they they did well with that. That's successful. We need another one of those bands. Let's manufacture a band, another band like that. And that's how genres are formed. 
It's people copying people. That's that's what it is. Um, so, you know, tapping back into is music subjective? Yeah, it's still subjective, but our minds are warped so heavily. Our minds are, are completely, you know, warped by what other people say they like. And we're copying each other. We're com- the, the, our perception is so fucked. It is. But I will say this, though. Um, imposter syndrome is is what we're... I guess is 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 a way of describing what we're talking about when it comes to taking influence from other people and then mimicking it, but mimicking it too truly to their kind of sound. Um, something that I'm not, I'm definitely not trying to say that you shouldn't do when it comes to your composition of music because I certainly do do this, and I am not quite, I'm not at all like ashamed or afraid to say that I do that is I have, I am influenced by other people and then I utilize aspects within the scope of people that I think, you know, artists or or bands or whatever that I listen to that I think is fantastic. I utilize ideas in terms of the way that they utilize chords and, um, you know, movements and rhythmic choices, et cetera. But then take that idea and then utilize the way that I like to write my songs and combine it together to create something that sounds different to both of those things in the first place. To me, that's something that I'm going to do a lot, a lot, because I and never everyone said, does. And I mean, everyone you can't does. you can't say that I'm not ever going to say I didn't, you know, take inspiration from anywhere. Of course you do, and that's how. That again, that's another reason we have these waves of genres, and you know. Listen to listen to. I mean, you wouldn't even got as far as Mozart if people weren't borrowing ideas from each other. Because it's, no. it's 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 that you're 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 standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah, I mean, so. look at look at look at music right now. Um, you know, we're into you know we're nearly at 2020 now, and you could definitely argue that um, there's become this resurgence of popular music. And when I say popular, I don't just mean pop. I mean music, any music that is popular being heavily influenced by the 80s. Yeah. It's a thing that's coming definitely back. happening. It's coming back yeah. because well, it's not that just the people have cut out of, come out of ideas. It's because it's back in fashion now. So we got to actually, I'll tell you what, I've got a great couple of points to make. I think we should, and I know you do too, you've still got to yeah. hear about your science, right? So here, Zach's going to bring the science, guys. But first, I think we should probably have a bit of wisdom. Zach, yeah, some that? hot tips. I'm ready for that. All right, let's do it. Hit the fucking theme tune, bitches. Hey guys, a little hot tip for you uh, guitarists out there. You may have seen me tying a sock around the neck of my guitar. And the reason I do this is to cover up all the bad notes and all the overtones. And uh, basically this is just going to make you a much cleaner, tighter player and uh, you're probably just going to be better, a better person overall for it. So take your sock off, tie it around the neck of your guitar. Better yet, buy one of my custom uh, trademark Sock of Dooms. Plug. All right, welcome back. How was, uh, how was that wisdom for you, Andy? It's, uh, it's, it's always a blessing to have such wisdom on this show, Zach. Really? Yeah. I see. Yeah. yeah that's fine. <laughs> no. Um, no, it really was. I'm just being an idiot. Don't worry. Don't mind me. Um, so, Zach, I think you promised us a really great 
little uh don't let don't lead them up to it too much i'm just gonna fail now <laughs> i want to see it i want to see you fail now come on uh so i was talking a bit earlier on um uh, about uh some some for me it's recent information but for a lot of uh, people out there it's definitely not recent information but uh, we're talking about why people perceive music the way that they do um and and maybe a little bit of science behind um well, I guess you could say musical development and brain development. Uh, so something that I've been, um, some information that I've been provided with recently that's not new. Uh, this is just something that not everyone might, you know, pay attention to is talking about um, our the actual brain formation that happens from when you're born um, up until obviously you die. Now, when you when you're born, you actually start with a a much uh, like much larger amounts of I believe it's your um, neural cortex. It's the the outer cortex, I believe it is. And you can you can correct me on, on this if I'm wrong. I'm probably using the wrong scientific term, but it's the uh, we're, basically, Dad, we're gonna have so many scientists writing in. I can't believe it. We're gonna it's be gonna swamped. be great. We're it's gonna, gonna be, be great. Um, yeah, swamped definitely. So basically, the, the the big part that I've been advised is the difference between human brains and other um, other brains of other mammals is that the 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 interior section of the brain we share. It's, we share similar characteristics with other mammals, but it's the exterior gray matter of the brain that differs. You know, humans generally have larger brains than other mammals, generally. Say that to the, the blue whales. Eh? I said generally, Andy. Generally. Right. Anyway, the point is, is but we also, the the... We have the different lobes of the brain. You know, you talk about, you know, the frontal lobe, um, you know, and other other ones. I don't know the names of the other ones. The but... Middle lobe, <laughs> back lobe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and what there is is there's there's threads um, uh, along the brain, uh, like between all of the gray matter. And when you're younger, the brain is obviously trying to learn all of that it can. And so all the threads are there. Uh, and then as you get older, and I'm talking about sort of within the first 10 years of your life, um, your brain is not able to be efficient if it has all of the threads there. Um, so after a certain period of time, your brain will start removing threads for things that you don't focus on, such as if you choose to learn how, like if you choose to learn how to play a particular sport your brain will solidify that thread on that particular um, activity. But say, for instance, you, you never choose to uh, ride, a mo like ride a bike. You might ride a bike a little bit when you're a kid, but then like when you're like five or something like that, but then you just stop and you never go and do that again. Your brain will then sacrifice that thread. Um, and so the whole point is, is that as you get older, um, your brain becomes more efficient and removes threads for activities that you either never learnt, um, that you might have heard about or you never learnt, or that you haven't put any time or focus in. But everything that you have put time and focus in, your brain will reinforce those threads, which is why things like you start playing an instrument when you're five and you keep playing that instrument for 30 years, chances are, if you're pushing yourself, you're going to get much 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 better at that over time 
but you might be terrible at windsurfing. And the, because you, you obviously haven't put any time or effort into that at all. So the point is, is that you, um, when it comes to how you perceive music, your brain establishes how you perceive music at a younger age based upon the influences that are going on around you in your life and in society. So when we're young, obviously we get exposed to music. Generally, we get exposed to pop music, generally speaking, because that's what's going on. So we're already subjected to what the music perception is of the greater scope of the world uh, or first world, at least if you're living in Australia, like we are, um, based upon popularized music. So how you interpret music is going to be defined mostly by the first 10 years of your life. And then after that, you start to make your own choices on what you like, but you already will still have that core there. So just imagine that is int- if that's true, that's really interesting. Just imagine that you were in a position where for the first 10 years of your life, the only thing that you listened to was the Mars Volta. <laughs> right. Or like, on. or the only thing that you listened to was um, dissonant tribal music from, yeah, from, mean, from Southern Africa or something like that. Like, yeah. You know, I, I'm, or, or just white noise. Or white noise. Like, your perception of music and what you understood to be desirable tones. I mean, imagine if you listen to traditional music from um, uh, traditional music from like Eastern Europe, for example. A lot of Eastern Europe traditional music or music from um, talking the gypsy scale, gypsy all scales, that kind of stuff. different kind of scales. Yeah, that's that's where your that's what you desire. It changes your taste on 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 a genetic level almost somewhat it? yes mm. and this is why like for instance if you look at like or a physical level or a physical level yeah. but it, it literally will change the makeup of your brain in terms of how you perceive music well, imagine, so i'm just imagining what my brain looks like in there now. yeah so and the point is is you, it's not it's n- it's not true that you can't learn things in later life because there's definite science to show that you can but it is far harder to learn how to perceive Mm. things in a completely different way when you've spent all of this time during the development on your brain learning a specific way. Like for me, I understood what popularized music was um, and classical music to a point, um, you know, from a young age because that was what I was subjected to. Uh, I was not subjected to a significant amount of progressive music and I certainly wasn't subjected to much, you know, things like gypsy music, um, music using um, completely different scales, whole tone scales, you know, things yeah. like that. Or What about, I'm just trying to think of the most bizarre genre I can think of, um, Mongolian throat singing? Is that a no, big part of your life? No, I wasn't. But like, to me, that kind of music is really cool. So, but if I was to t- ask, you know, by a client, say, can you please produce my band? We do Mongolian throat singing metal. I'd have a crack at it. I mean, I'd definitely have a crack at it, but would it be challenging for me? Yes, it would be challenging so for me. So how do you how do you explain that I write in so many genres then? I will there's nothing I'll turn down. I, will I would say that the thing is is what people need to understand as well is that you're a unique case for a start. You're the way that you perceive music is not the same as the average person. 
the fact that right now you have a, an orchestra in your head. Yeah. It's like you've got one guy sitting in the corner banging a drum <laughs> and then there's another small That's, it's child actually a on psychological the other side. problem that's there's that's another small say. child on the other side hitting a cymbal but they're hitting yeah. it in a polyrhythm at the same time yeah, and that's the enemy that's, that's my five-year-old self just crying out zach to the world yeah, whereas in my head hear me of, i'm trying to shaking the world hear me yeah listen Whereas in my head, I've basically just got a, you know, a 70 piece choir singing and, you know, singing this weird combination of beautiful harmonies. And then there's like a whole, you know, spoken word section going on. And then there's like some hardcore band in the background who are hanging off the ceiling. Yeah, you, know, you should probably get down. that checked so, out. You know, so for me, some, it's a little different. some help with that, Zachy boy. Yeah. But the point I'm trying to say is that uh, people... At this day and age, with the accessibility of the internet to music, um, oh, it should blow the lid wide open, shouldn't it? It does. No, it does. Everyone should be. But then this is why pop. I feel pop is just it's just desaturating. You've desaturating got you've got a, you've got a hate hate relationship with pop. Well, don't I kind of do in in many ways, <laughs> and and I feel that it dumbs everything down. It doesn't. It's so. It's so homogenized and so ritualistic and bland and boring and people but need to in saying that though when it comes to writing four part vocal harmony parts for anything it's a good time Zach Andy's so, a fan so yeah. I feel like in that aspect maybe it, I wouldn't say so much that you're a hypocrite it's just more that I think that you just you you do like a lot of aspects about pop maybe a bit more then you're letting on in this no, podcast. No, 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 I do. And I enjoy writing pop music. I, I just feel that um, the, the philosophy behind the music machine that is the, mu- the, the money machine, sorry, that is the music industry and and the business side of it, I, 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 I dislike that the you should be writing from the heart. You should be writing new things. You should be exploring. You yeah. should be writing. You should be telling people your your story, not someone else's. Stop telling other people's stories. Stop copying exactly what everyone else is doing just because you think it's successful. And start treating your music like your voice. And do you really want to just write the same book over and over again? Why don't you fucking stand out and do something interesting? Exactly. Put your you're passionate about. Put your explorer's hat on and jump into the jungle. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I kind of feel like we're coming to some sort of conclusion here. I think we are. Um, I know you had a few quick points. So, so a few quick points would be that regardless of genre, regardless of this, I mean, I don't know why you're not wearing a lab coat right now after that, Zach. That was some scientific, uh, I mean, Dr. Knight over I, here. Yeah, but you, you got to remember this. I, I, I definitely screwed up some of the uh, some. specific turns. Uh, regarding the brain. Laura is squirming uh, at the moment listening to this. Anyway, look. She's never going to listen to this episode, (laughs) hopefully. (laughs) She'll be one of many. Anyway, look, this is the thing. There are genres. There's what you perceive. There's your experiences. There's your genetics. All these different things, they play a part. But there are also things that make a piece of music undeniably successful. There are tools and techniques that span all that and are still successful because you hear it in a metal song, you hear it in a classical song, you hear it in a pop song, you'll hear it in Mongolian throat singing, for fuck's sake, right? It doesn't matter. <laughs> the things humans like, they're out there. Call yeah. and response. Having a guy sing or a girl sing, and then that, or, or even, and then that response being mimicked somewhere else. 
I think that might come from birdsong even. It probably right? does. And then you've got like, um, you do that with, with notes as well. You'll play a thing and then that thing will get repeated. Um, repetition, huge thing. People, the, the human brain go, grabs onto that. Yes, I like that familiar sound. I want to hear that again and again and again. Yeah, and, it, and, and a really big thing with repetition as well. I don't want to segue too hard on this, but everyone loves repetition. And the thing that they they like a lot is repetition that is repeated but is slightly changed as well. Repetition. Yeah. Re- evolving repetition yep. is is probably the, the most one of the biggest tools that you can do as a yep. songwriter. Yeah. And there's obviously note choice. Um certain certain note choice will trigger endorphins across the board. Chord changes. You have the the four chords. I'm not going to go into it. The same four chords that you use in, in pretty much every pop song. When it finally hits that final chord of home, that feeling of home, the endorphin rush is real in everyone, pretty much. Yeah. Um, you know, and you're, there's so many aspects of music which are undeniably scientifically, you know, going to hit home with just about every listener, which means, yes, music is subjective on so many levels but it's also it's also not entirely subjective because there are there's evidence to suggest there are things that we want to hear and when we hear them our brains go yes i'm going to lap that shit up keep giving me that keep spoon feeding me that so it's definitely i don't want to say 50 50 but it's not it's not completely subjective no music isn't completely subjective uh and i also think that uh, there's a lot to happen still when it comes to this, when it comes to the creation of music, uh, the biggest aspect that I see changing, uh, what's going to be perceived as good music over the next 10 years is going to be tone and sonic perception when it comes to, to music, because, because production levels, are ever expanding and in the last 10 years production levels have reached a, a, a have reached this kind of sonic kind of so, sonic perception level i'm not gonna i'm just using that phrase again and again um saying the technology is there now it's, that, it's there that 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 almost it's we've played all the notes now we know what everything's sounds like you're saying there's going to be a bigger focus in the next decade on the production quality and the actual sound and the tone yeah, yeah, I or, would say that that's true, but I also think the choice of the tone. People are going to pl- like put far more emphasis on tone and emotion in a song because choice of chord is it's kind of, you know, if you're choosing to stick within the scope of a genre that you're thinking of working in, choice of chord is probably pre-date like premeditated for you. Uh but there's still going to be new genres that people are going to create as well, subgenres and different kind of perceptions. I'm really interested to see where music is going. I am. I think too. they've said for the past 30, 40 years that all music has been written. There's no more notes left. You know, there's only 12 notes. Um, so I reckon they're what wrong. Can you, you know, <laughs> what, what more can you do? Every melody's been written. I like to think that's. I think there's still wiggle room to, to write your own styles. I, I'm certainly, certainly still going at it. Um, and. I'm still putting out music that I think is, honestly, I think is original. 
and has and, a lot and, of originality to it. Yeah. So, and I think I am to it. It's just that I struggle with it more than you do. I think. <laughs> well, you know, I feel th- I still think there's there's time for everyone to get writing melodies, and um, ultimately, you know, everyone is going to have a different idea of what what makes a song good or not. But there are many common denominator factors which across the board will will help your songwriting and maybe we'll do a podcast on songwriting zach maybe we will maybe we will but i think i think that 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 tees enough tees it up now um we've had enough rambling here uh our listeners i know they have listeners or maybe just listener number one uh we're lucky probably if we're lucky uh are probably uh probably over listening to our voices right now so i'm gonna wrap that one up andy and uh and yeah most importantly, um, if you if you like the podcast, send us some hate. If you don't like the podcast, send us some hate as well. Um, you know, if you're hungry, send us some hate. You know, just just generally speaking. I mean, you could, you know, you could check us out on Facebook or Instagram or anything like that, but it's really unimportant. Most importantly, send us some hate. Zach needs needs some kind of attention. He doesn't mind if it's it's negative or positive. So send this guy some love. Thanks, guys, as always, for uh, tuning in to whatever the hell this is. I'm not sure anymore, Zach. Don't know about yourself. Uh, you know what? I just think that I, I'm out of tea. I need some more tea, Andy. That's really the answer. Okay, let's get some more tea. We'll take it to Q&A. We Thanks will. again for all your questions. Please keep writing in questions, sending in questions, whichever way you can. And uh, we'll do our best to answer them. And uh, yeah. on that note, Zach, let's hit the jingle for Q&A, buddy. Done. Thank you. Zach and Andy Q&A Ask a question Hello and welcome to the Q&A section of the show Once again we are in quarantine I'm in my studio And Zach, you're over there somewhere in your studio Is that right? Certainly is I'm actually uh, in the process of working on a couple productions at the moment But uh, I decided that I would take off uh, a bit of the morning To have a nice chat with my pal Mr Gillian uh, across the other side of the city. How's it uh, How's it over there? It's looking a little... Uh, oh, that was just me knocking my pop filter. Good job. Uh, it's looking a little... Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's 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 a comfortable outside today. How about you? Well, it doesn't matter. We're not going outside, are we, Zach? Because we're in lockdown, baby. Yes, that's true. We are in lockdown. Lockdown. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I mean... It is what it is. We're going to carry on trying to answer these questions that, that you guys are sending in and uh, and carry on and, uh, yeah, have a good time. There's still yeah, positives to be definitely. had. There's... There's many positives. I mean, you know, I just had a fantastic peanut butter sandwich. Andy really wishes that uh, I could keep the peanut butter away from him because he doesn't like it. Uh, well, well remembered. Yeah. No, I haven't forgotten. I, know. I cannot stand it. When I was a kid, someone chased me up the street with a packet of peanuts. I cannot stand the smell or the taste or anything. Like, How are you with the, satay? About anything that's peanut related. I and mean, what's weird is I can have other nuts. It's not an allergy. I you can't, can't have like, any nuts at all? No, no, I can. That's what's oh, weird. You can't it's like I don't nuts. have I don't. Oh, so have your sex life is safe. <laughs> well, you know, I like, I like a walnut. I like, uh, you know... Pecan. There's yeah. some good nuts out there, Zach. What about almonds? almonds? Yeah. Yeah, 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 they're good. They're yeah. good. Okay, okay. But um, a Brazil nuts, can I just say, wow, yeah. right? But 
let me let me also say that they're about 33 calories per nut, which is mental. But anyway, I'm not going to touch on that. Enough okay. nuts, I think, Andy. Enough nuts. Yeah. Let's get Enough on with out. this, uh, this, this, yeah. this Q&A. We've, we've got a few we got questions. A few, yeah. We've got a few questions, Zach. Yeah. Um, they're from the backlog. They're not, they're not necessarily very recent ones. Um, but, uh, but still probably s- pertinent questions though. Pertinent indeed, Zach. Mm. Great word. Um, mm. I'm going to hit you up with, um, Major Bruno one. What? Now, Major Bruno one. Yeah. I don't know if he's the first in a long line of future Major Brunos, but he's got that before anyone else and he's put a one on the end of there. So Major Bruno, thanks for sending this in, buddy. Um, it's quite an insightful question actually. Oh yeah. Um, trying to summarize what he's put here. He's, he's saying, with the internet growing so much, you've got very successful bands who not didn't necessarily start by touring and, and doing it the old-fashioned way. They kind of got successful online first um, and built an audience there, and then maybe they took to touring afterwards. He's curious to know what our perspectives are on touring and, and playing gigs in 2020. Well, obviously... Gigs in 2020 has not been not been very good at all because of the coronavirus, obviously. Yeah. I think so, what he's getting at is like, is there still value in touring or can you do it all online? And do, do bands need to tour anymore? It building is there value in building um a fan base the old fashioned way of going out on the road versus, you know, popping your stuff on MySpace? Well, I guess the Short answer from my perspective is both things are just as important as each other because it is absolutely true that a strong online presence is necessary if you want to be a successful band. Now, I'm going to do a little bit of a sort of a preface here on this. You're, you're asking the question about bands. So I'm going to answer from the perspective of what I would suggest for a band. If you were asking about artists in terms of like a pop artist or a rap artist, you know, or somebody who did like some EDM or something like that, the answer would be a different answer. Or even potentially solo artist in the metal genre, I think could probably get away without touring so often. For sure. But But I'll let you say what you need to say. But for the band band perspective, you think about it this way. it is undeniably true that the internet is becoming a larger um, influence in the way that uh, basically entertainers are perceived in the world. And every single day, that perspective grows probably a little bit closer in terms of the way that people are focusing on the internet. But the key factor is this. It's undeniably true that the difference between somebody who will listen to your music once versus somebody who will continue to listen to your music through for a long period of time, become a genuine fan, is connection. Now, no matter which way you cut it, genuine connection between somebody is always established far... It, it, the, you know, the, the connection itself is far stronger if it is made in person when you're seeing that particular artist perform or you're even potentially having a conversation with that particular artist at a show. That is where a real closer connection with them is established versus seeing them online. Now, with online stuff, you know, people like 
artists who who do like what Andy does, where they make the YouTube channels, they provide a little bit more insight into their personal lives. You know, they actually have try sometimes have real time interaction with people online through streaming, etc. The personal connection with them is a little stronger than people who don't do that kind of stuff. But it's really it's really important to get out there and play gigs, uh, and it is really important to tour. But it doesn't mean that you need to do all of your focus on that. I honestly think it is worthwhile putting as much effort into effort into both things if you want to succeed as a band. What do you think, Andy? I think um, both are absolutely essential for bands. Um, but I think, honestly, it's in many ways, sadly, becoming more of an online thing. Um, I don't think... You absolutely need to tour, uh, even in the metal scene. I think you can get away with, like, a specifically solo artists. I know some solo metal guitar players who don't ever tour. Um, mm, it's just mm, something mm. they don't do, and they've still managed to get a, a good online presence. And that's enough to sell their music and um, and get fans and stuff. And that's that's all good and well, but there's something to be said about going on the road and meeting the fans and, and playing a real show. And I think ultimately... Fans are always going to want that. So, and that's something that's so upsetting about the time we're in at the moment with the coronavirus stuff is that, you know, it's a huge part of people's lives that's been taken away. And a huge, uh, huge part of bands, you know, what makes a band has been stripped away from everyone and they can't, you know, I, I mean, you know about all the tours that have been cancelled for friends that we know and uh, yeah, bands I we know, know. And even, you know, my, my band's going to have gigs cancelled this year. We've already um, had my band's already had a couple yeah. gigs cancelled already. Yeah. Um, a festival that I was putting on uh, with the studio um, has now been cancelled as well. Um, you know, it's 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 a really it's a very devastating time for the entertainment industry. It is, and 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 I mean, look, I'll preface this to say that um, Andy and I are not uh, the average kind of people set up in the way that we do things in the industry, you know, quite a long time ago, we decided that just playing live music wasn't, um, the only thing that, you know, we wanted to do as creatives, which is why, you know, Andy obviously went down the route of doing all the different things that he's doing. Um, you know, and I decided that I wanted to be a producer and do production stuff and then get into podcasting and then pull Andy along, you know, even though he kicked and screamed a bit about it because I'm really annoying. So <laughs> there is that. Um, but, you know, the long and the short of it is, is there are a lot of artists um, and a lot of people in the entertainment industry who have been really hit hard, especially, um, you know, a lot of the larger bands uh, who, generate a large amount of the income which means that they are actually able to do things like pay for rent and you know eat and things like that or support their family for the ones that are married or have you know kids and things like that they they're really struggling um as are all of the music venues as well you know uh, i know over here in australia at the moment they've pretty much all closed and a large amount of the ones that have closed have actually said that if they don't open in the next you know, month or two that they are actually going to be closed indefinitely because they just, they can't afford to stay, uh, like this. So mm. it's, it's, it is unfortunately quite a dark time for the entertainment industry. So this is the time 
where if you find that you're in any way, shape or form able to support people in the creative uh, world, because, you know, right now, um, anybody who says that they are not absorbing a lot of creative content while they're in isolation is probably lying. <laughs> Honestly, would you say yeah. that, Andy? Yeah, I think people people don't understand, not everybody, but I think a lot of people they're not aware of how much media stuff is is you know creative content is going in their eyes and ears you know like at all times and yeah. someone has to create that stuff and it's always the creatives who it's just like oh but that's fun making music and art is fun so therefore you shouldn't be paid for it but you know how many people are benefiting from that so exactly uh, i mean yeah. you know it, I feel like the statement where people, which which is still something that we hear a lot and I don't feel like it's very supported by a lot of, um, you know, authority figures in terms of the perspective on what's important for society. But, uh, yeah, like the first industry that sort of gets kicked in the guts is the entertainment industry when anything ever goes wrong. Um, and then when the entertainment industry isn't around, people start to do things... Uh, that are not necessarily that great when they have, you know, nothing around to, uh, I guess, you know, pump them up or keep them happy I or, mean, you know. Yeah, I think people will go crazy without entertainment in whatever, or art of some kind, and that's where civilization, civilization breaks down. We all become feral and, well, everyone's already become feral, so who knows. Um, but, yeah, I, I think, Major Bruno, thanks for your question, man. I think, um, I think... Touring still has a huge place. I think, can you imagine, Zach, when this is all over, the people who just cannot wait to get out to a gig, those mosh pits are going to be out of control oh, when yeah. we finally get to do that again. People are going to be going crazy. They actually are going to go pretty pretty nuts. I know that there's quite a lot of people I know who have been very vocal about uh, their sadness with live uh, gigs being postponed or cancelled at the moment. Mm. Um and a lot of tours have sort of been rescheduled. Larger scale ones have been rescheduled for the last quarter of the year. So I fully suspect that the moment that I guess the uh, floodgates, so to speak, uh, reopened, uh, there is going to be a a large amount of shows uh, selling out, even ones that we might not have suspected that they would have just because attendance will be high um, when people are finally free to step outside the uh, mm. confines of isolation, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll, we'll move on. Um, I'll I'll break the ice a little bit from that dreariness with uh, the Ironbreaker, who asks Ooh. simply, "Ass or titties?" You know what? I'm going to say ass. I'm going to say ass. Hundred percent. I wasn't breastfed. I've I've got no, you know, I've got no attachment to 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 breasts. Really, I don't. I, they've never been there for me. So, you know. <laughs> I'm an ass man for sure. Um, let's move on without dwelling too long on, on that. Yes. Um, we've got a question here from Eddie DeWitt Jr. I see. Apparently. Jr. is, uh, I think that's an American thing. I don't I think, think it is an American yeah, thing, yeah. I think, I think, I, I, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure. Um, he asks, are CDs going out? Is the digital spectrum taking over? Well, I think it's pretty obvious that's 
already happened. Been a, been a hot topic for a long time. Yeah. Um, you know, from the dawn of Napster and all that stuff. Downloading music, getting music for free. Spotify is now obviously making it much easier. Although we've done an episode on Spotify and how much, you know, how great a lot of those you know, aspects of Spotify are for artists and listeners. Um, there are downfalls as well. But yeah, CD sales, they dropped massively, you know, they in really the last do. decade or two decades. And uh, sadly, they probably continue to do so. I think, though, there is still a lot of support for the underground artists. There, there is, is still demand is. for a physical product. Yeah, and I think I think the thing that, that people probably um, would be happy to know is that while CD sales have actually gone down staggeringly, uh, two mediums that existed before CD have actually gone up. Uh, and that is, funnily enough, not surprising, vinyl, uh, which has increased massively in terms of sales. And so has uh, cassette tape as well. Really? I yes. didn't know about cassette. I knew that vinyls, obviously people are still loving vinyls and I think that's great. Mm. Cassettes are coming back. Yeah, artists have been releasing cassettes, and you know, uh, and and the thing is, a lot of it's it's kind of interesting because I would say it's probably the same as it is with vinyl in the fact that there's a large amount of artists who, uh, sorry, a large amount of consumers who buy vinyls but don't actually have a vinyl player, and they just want to own the custom yeah. vinyl. They just they, want they want know, the big... insert and and yeah. you know the whole thing because it, it they're beautiful. Like it's a beautiful. They are thing. beautiful things. They're nostalgic you know? and they're pretty and it's wonderful to to have something tangible and physical in your hands yeah that rather than paying and just you've got something that you know maybe you know you could have had for free anyway on spotify essentially exactly and i think um, i mean yeah. cds they do look cool to a point but i feel like you you put a cd and a vinyl next to each other which is the one that you're going to open on you know like a sunday afternoon um, you know, where you're sort of chilling, um, you know, with a spot of tea and you sort of just want to absorb, you know, that, that creative thing going on. So you pull out a vinyl and, and then you, you put it on and you have a good you know, time, have a good time, read through but the booklet what, and check it all that kind of stuff. But I don't see, I don't see a resurgence of mini discs. Like, you don't. Back, and that's they? because mini discs need to stay where they, uh, <laughs> where they belong. I loved my <laughs> mini disc player. God damn it. I loved it. <laughs> Oh, they just, they didn't do anything for me, Andy. I loved that thing. It was so cool. Even back then, it was that weird sort of retro futuristic vibe. Like, even then it was weird, I think. But I loved that. I really loved it. I yeah. Actually, talking about different mediums of releasing albums, I saw some some pop or synthwave type artist releasing a, a full album on a Sega Mega Drive, or the Americans would say Sega Genesis cartridge. Wow. Now, I wish I had thought of it because I'm working on a video game metal album right now and it would be great to do that. But how? I mean, why don't you just release how, it on a NES cartridge? There's a NES cartridge option too, I'm sure, Zach. But the thing is, not many people own a working Sega or. Nez, anyway. Something tells me he probably has a USB out as well for it. On Maybe, the but it's drive. just, it's, it's just, it's genius. I love it, but it's completely bonkers. Like nobody 
Drake is going to be able to play that album. But I, I want to do that. I want to see if I can hoard a load of, uh, you know, secondhand Sega cartridges and see if I can work out how to put an album onto one. So imagine if you put one in and the title screen comes up, you know, oh, like, gosh. It's like, wouldn't that be great? Yeah. And then you're playing an album through your TV. It's just bonkers, but I love that kind of stuff. Um, well, I think we might only have one question left for this episode. Um, yeah. And, and quite a nice segue, actually. Um, hold on. Let me just see who sent this one. Jessica Hills. Ah, a regular person. A regular, yeah. Um, thanks, Jess. Uh, she is asked, hmm. That's, 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 that's how she started the question. Hmm. hmm. What is the worst video game ever? And what is the best video game theme song? Ooh. I think... Gosh. I'll let you start on that one. So let's oh, start Andy, with the worst. Andy, throw me under the bus, so to speak. Well, I can start if you want, Zach. No, worst no, video Andy. game ever. I'll, I'll start. Worst you video game ever. Um, honestly, there's so many terrible games out there, and they're all terrible for different reasons. There are some shockers, aren't there? There really are. I, I mean, we even played a couple on my um, on my box, remember? <laughs> Trying oh. to play that, that Ninja Turtle game. Uh, Right, so the Ninja Turtle, like, so Zach's Bucks Night, or I would say Stag Do, or whatever, be you know, the bachelor party before you. Yeah, I mean, we went paintballing during the day, which Andy was unable <laughs> to attend to, thankfully, so he didn't get literally destroyed. <laughs> Although I, I would have wished to have shot you in the balls many a time. Um, uh... We ended up in the this barcade, I guess you'd call it, an old, old retro arcade kind of bar. Mm. And we all got around, we had four of us around this notoriously infuriatingly difficult game teenage ninja turtles right but it's like a side scroller like double dragon style oh yeah it's the old school arcade one yeah yeah, and i'll yeah. tell you it was um my rsi has never been so bad playing when i was playing that game <laughs> shocking um is that the but, worst game ever though no i don't no, no, think no. it's not no, no. It, i i have one i mean one comes to mind immediately for me all right well go, you go ahead and that is the Winter Olympics game on the N64. Oh, now, yes. Actually, yeah. <laughs> no, that's really bad. Which was a series. I, I owned it. Me and my brother owned that game. Yeah. You know, back in like 98 or something. And you're talking about a series of games, mini games, whatever, that mm. should that just are not tailored to be made into a video game, right? Let me let me rattle some off. Ice skating, right? Mm. All you did was you pressed L R L R L R to control the left and the uh, and the right foot of mm. an ice skater, and it was absolutely impossible. It was the the game was ridiculous. I mean, there was like a skiing jump. I don't even remember how you controlled that one. It was completely ridiculous. So that's what I would say. Um, for mine, Winter Olympics on the N64, a complete, a cartridge of garbage. Pretty terrible. Strong words, least. but uh, yeah. Um, so, do you I have mean, any others or should we move on to the best video game theme song? Uh, honestly, I, 
there's so many bad games, but I feel like they've been bad for different reasons. Um, realistically, though, um, yeah, I mean, I can't really think about any particular games right now that have stood out to be exceptionally bad versus other ones. Um, well, mull it over and we'll, we'll yeah. move maybe, on to the maybe next like, Maybe, like, just for the cheese factor, like, the, the last couple of releases of Devil May Cry, just because it's getting, like, really over the top. <laughs> I've, never played, I've actually never played those games. See, the first cup, the first two Devil May Crys were incredible. So incredible. Um, and then after that, it's just gotten real cheese ball. So, but yeah. All right. Best theme songs. Got to see... Theme, well, songs, me, theme songs are a hard one because if you're talking about best video game songs, then yeah. that's an easy one. But best video game theme songs well, why is hard. Well, why don't we open it up? Yeah. I, I would say if it has to be the, the, the title theme or whatever, yeah. Streets of Rage puts me in the mood to go on the streets and and beat people up. That, that gets me in the mood. I love it. It's so what moody. About, but Andy, what about that classic Fight or Lose? Now... Nobody's going to understand this, but <laughs> at that same barcade, uh, I think it was my birthday a couple of years ago, mm. we found a game called Fight or Lose. Now, I know what you're thinking. This is obviously a brawl, brawling, beat em up. Mm. No, you'd be wrong. It was a chess game. <laughs> yes. It made no sense. It was called Fight or Lose, but you had chess pieces and it was just a game of chess. But you only had like very limited moves. It, it was like... It was weird, like, we've put you in a situation where you only have a pawn and a knight and you have to fight or lose. And mm. it was bizarre. I don't remember what happened. I just remember I got very drunk and it was very... Uh, it was an appalling game. Actually, that was probably the worst game ever. I think fight or lose could be the worst game ever, Zach. But also the best. But Definitely, yeah. Look, um, when it comes to theme songs, though, Andy, like, let's be real. It's got to be that I'm not going to say that there is a best theme song, but I'm going to say top five. And all of these are going to be classics because. My God, Zach. How five. it goes. Yeah. Go for it. But I'm going to go off. for it. Okay. So, in no particular order, the Tetris <laughs> theme song. Oh, of course. Goes that saying. Yep. Followed very saying. closely, in no particular order, by The Legend of Zelda. Yep. Love it. Got to go with that. Absolutely. Um, Mario, it could be really Mario 1, 2, or 3. 2 was a bit whack, though, so probably Mario 1 or 3. Um, Always good music. Yeah. And, Donkey Kong, though, legend. Yeah, and who can go past Donkey Kong Country? Donkey Kong Country had great music. Mm. I mean, all the Sonic franchise. Yeah, and the Sonic the franchise as well. Absolutely. And then, you know, of course, your other good pal, Mega Man. Mega Man was great. Mm. Yeah. I mean, also it, Pokemon, this, Pokemon Red and Blue, unbelievable music. Definitely. But there isn't really a one out of all of those that I think is the best. I feel like they all are the best. If you want to be real, like if you want to pick one and you want to go, this is the most specific one for me, my personal note would say Legend of Zelda 2, The Adventures of Link, only because that is literally the first game that I ever clocked. Um, and probably still to this day, one of the hardest games I've ever played. It's probably one of the most, the least, uh, recognized popular Zelda games. Um, but it was the only ever Zelda side scroller. So there you go. 
Nice. Yeah. What about you, Andy? If you had push comes to shove, what would be your final one? What for best music? Best theme song. Theme. I don't know. For, th- for theme, I don't know. Honestly, the the Pokemon Red and Blue intro is fantastic. That's awesome. Love that. Um. There you go. Sonic the Hedgehog. I don't know. There's plenty. There's plenty to choose from, guys. Streets of Rage. Obviously, everyone knows that's my favorite. Everything from that. Streets of Rage 1 and 2 soundtracks are absolutely mind-blowing. Um, okay. I think, honestly, we might be out of questions, Zach. For now, yes. For now. Um, but, yeah. I think we can probably wrap this, uh, this Q&A up there. Thank you so much for everyone who sent questions in. And please continue to do so as we uh, continue with this podcast. Yes, we uh, we really appreciate you listening to us. And, uh, you know, if you have any feedback about the episode, um, just hit us up via, you know, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, uh, or, um, you know, any other way that you can uh, get to us. Carry a pigeon. Um, just, you know, do, do whatever you will <laughs> to Actually, get a message to us. Considering the quarantine, um, I don't know, carry pigeons could be could be the way forward. Could be. Depends whether the internet stays alive. Yeah. Um, but yeah, on that note, uh, we are going to sign off. Uh, this has been another episode of the Zach and Andy podcast, and uh, we really appreciate you listening to our bogus. Yeah. Um, thanks, guys. And as always, in these trying times, look after one another, and we will see you again soon. Take care, guys. Bye.